Welcome to the Zeal Interestings podcast, where we discuss an interesting article or link from the week. I'm your host, Chris White. My co-host for this week is Emma Castor. Welcome back, Emma. Hey there, everybody. Today, we're covering an article by Jonathan Solozano Hamilton titled, We Fired Our Top Talent, Best Decision Ever Made. That appeared on Free Code Camp's Medium blog. We also wanted to talk about a response article that was written by Tony Robinson that we found interesting. The article retells a story from earlier in Jonathan's career in which he was brought in to help a project that was two years behind its deadline, and how firing the most technically talented team member saved the project. So without retelling the whole story, this top team member who's given the pseudonym Rick after Rick and Morty, and if you see in the show, it paints a very clear picture. Rick was relied on for the most complicated parts of the project. And by a combination of walling out other developers, taking on too much complexity and not documenting or testing his code, drove the project way beyond deadline. So it's a sad tale to me because Rick ended up working over 80 hours a week and was abusing his coworkers and ended up getting fired. And in this meeting where he was fired, he was understandably angry, calling everybody at the company monkeys scrabbling in the dirt who would never be able to understand what he did. Wow. Monkeys scrabbling in the dirt. That's rough. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that abusive language is ever acceptable when, when you're working with coworkers. No. But it seems like Rick was almost pushed into that place, right? Yeah. So there were a lot of cultural things about this story that seemed to indicate there were some other issues with management. And that's one of the points that Tony Robinson really makes in, in his article as well. Right. It seems like two years after an original shipment date is an incredible amount of time to be behind, right? Like, how do you actually mm -hmm. get to that point where we're, it seems like the article is a great story about how Jonathan came in and, you know, collaborated with both the team members and their clients to get something shipped much faster. But where was like the project management before that? Where was the client relationship management before that? You kind of have to wonder, were they doing waterfall or like what, what happened here? It seems like they were doing like Niagara Falls where, yeah. <laughs> where like Rick was the only waterfall. <laughs> so the conclusion of the story is when they fired Rick, the team kind of freaked out at first and all looked at each other like, what do we do now? But then sat down and started collaborating and started working again. And they also trimmed down the requirements a little bit. They renegotiated with some of their clients and they ended up realizing that a lot of the complicated logic that was written in the application was handling edge cases that 90% of their users would not have to deal with. So they stripped out a lot of the complex business logic and the team banded together and basically got it shipped in what was it, like a year? It was like much much shorter than the original deadline. Right. I believe the article said that they shipped like a prototype in like six months and like mm -hmm. over a year, they completely turned the project around. Right. Which sounds, which is a really cool success story for actually performing good project management using the principle of like MVP and like what's most important, mm -hmm. what are edge cases. It's really sad to me because like this individual, Rick, like he was working 80 plus hours a week on features that never ended up any benefiting anyone, right? Like, yeah, it sounds like a lot of it was his own style contributed to that. Like he, uh, mm -hmm. he didn't trust other libraries or other people's code. And so he would write his own tools and then he believed in himself more than like documentation or, or testing. And so he, 
even Rick was falling into a path of not understanding his own code because none of it was tested or documented. Yeah. And that classic, like, oh, I'm too busy to document my code or test my code, that sort of trap, which is always not true because you will be creating more work for yourself in the future by not doing testing. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Management, as Tony Robinson basically says, management should have stepped in a lot earlier and insisted that he not take on more than he could manage. He was working a 12 hour a day by seven day a week schedule, which is absurd. You know, that's not sustainable for anyone. Right. And then like this was going on for a long time. Right. 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 Like two years. Right. Yeah. He also in the beginning, like he said, he had a whiteboard installed on his wall where um, he would explain things like people would come in and ask him questions and like the ghosts of discussions past, like were never totally erased from the whiteboard. So like, this is somebody who was educating the team, who was mentoring people. Was he doing it nicely? Like, who knows, you know, Maybe not. <laughs> but, but he was teaching people and people were relying on him. So that culture of reliance seems like it developed pretty early. But as he got more busy and as more bugs piled up, as more work got heaped on his plate, he stopped being able to teach people. It was, I don't know, faster for him to just do it himself, except he couldn't manage that. Right, right. There's that trap that even I fall into sometimes where you have a junior member on the team and the project becomes so behind that there is a huge temptation there to like be like, you know, I want to teach you these things, but I need to ship X by Friday. And the only way to do that is if I lock myself in my office and get it done. Mm-hmm. The only way I can assure that that's going to happen is if I if, if I behave that way. Right. And that's just not a sustainable practice. Like you have all these people around you. As a senior developer, it is the responsibility of a senior developer to help educate other members of the team and also like learn from other members of the team. It sounds like he could have probably learned a lot more about interpersonal communication and project management from others that he was lacking. Absolutely. One thing I I think also worth mentioning is that like he was working these 80 plus hour weeks. Mm -hmm. There's been recent studies, one by Australian National University, says that working more than 40 hours a week is actually counterproductive. Like you, Mm -hmm. you're the total volume of work you produce in 40 hours a week is, is the most, like if you work 60 hours a week, you might not even produce as much as a 40 hour week. Right. Because you're tired. You're tired. And it seems like you know, absolutely. It sounds like Rick was experiencing that, but also it sounds like he also went out of his way to belittle others and make people feel small and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. while, you know, I have some empathy for Rick, there's also that element of like, no one should be abusive to others. Yeah. So it sounds like when Jonathan came in, firing Rick was the right decision. Yes. Like if you have, if you get to the point where there's someone on your team that's being abusive to others and not allowing collaboration, that person probably just has to go at that point. But mm-hmm. it is sad that it got to that point. Yeah, I think the thing that maybe was missing from Jonathan's article is the accountability of management. You know, it's written to kind of demonize this Rick and like say like, oh, look at this toxic individual who like messed up our project, even though he was brilliant and we got rid of him and everything was better. And it's like, no, he probably became toxic largely as a result of the environment that the work environment that you made for him right or not jonathan particularly but this company and yeah i agree that that firing him was probably the right decision but there also probably could have been some check-ins like before that right um that would have mitigated this so it sounds like it didn't need to get to that point yeah necessarily absolutely so yeah i want to talk about like 
how do you fix this? Like if you have a project that's like going south and, you know, maybe a rock star developer that you're relying on for everything who is getting burned out and is snapping back at the team, how do you fix it so that you don't have to fire them? Right. I like that question. I think the first thing is absolutely to distribute the workload. Like don't have any systems that only one rock star can understand. Like make sure that mm-hmm. there's redundancy in the understanding of the system and like the, the work that's being done. I think that's a great thing to do to prevent it. Yeah. I will also say that I think I write bad code when I'm stressed, when I'm trying to just get something out the door. That's true. And I mean, certainly like if I'm not testing, then who knows if it's going to work or not in a week. But if you are managing your workload so that you have the time to like commit to code quality, like you're going to have less stress and no breakages down the road. And that'll also create systems that are going to be more easy to understand. Right. Practices like TDD and refactoring mm-hmm. and, and PR reviews. Uh, yeah. Those are all things that that frequently don't survive through high pressure environments. Mm-hmm. Right. And yet that in a high pressure environment, that's when we need them most. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you, I think probably there were no PR reviews in this probably not. in this work environment. It, it sounds like uh, the only PR review was if you wrote code that Rick didn't like, it got destroyed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think also you should manage your engineers' kind of weeks and work days so that they are required to collaborate. You know, we we practice pair programming yeah. at Zeal, and that's a great way of doing it. But it doesn't even have to be you know, full on all day pair programming. I think just making sure that no one can live in their office for 12 hours at a time mm-hmm. for any reason, you know, that sounds really bad no matter what. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Another thing that seems like it was dangerous or problematic in this environment is like a feeling like Rick had an ownership of the code. Right. So like I've heard that in in places where um, like people have a lot of like pride or, or feel like they have ownership over specific code parts of the code base that they wrote, you're much more likely to be defensive about feedback as willing to change. You kind of get into this mindset where it's like, my way is the right way. Right. And that can be dangerous. Um, I think it's it's much better when there's no like my code versus your code. It's just everybody works on the code base. And exactly. when you're giving a PR review in an environment like that, it's not like you did this bad. It's this code needs this, you know? Definitely. Having a like empathetic language, like as you're going about approaching the code base and how you talk about it. Yeah, that really resonates with how I felt early in my software development career. When I was first getting started, I felt really, really guilty and super anxious about like bugs or like schedule project schedules or you know, in my first professional software job, we helped small it was a type of consulting company where we helped startups ship their initial products. Mm-hmm. And we were doing this several times a year. And so when we would ship these products, you know, every product has bugs, right. especially when it's an MVP. And I would have a very deep sense of guilt and ownership over those bugs after they, you know, after I had no capability of even helping at that point. Mm-hmm. But I actually saw a tweet and I, I don't remember the author, but the tweet was essentially, you are not your code. Mm-hmm. Like you should not personally identify with your code. Like you, you write code and hopefully you're collaborating with others on code. Right. But if you can have a less like emotionally charged relationship with your code. Yeah. I think that's a lot healthier. Yeah. And the more you collaborate, the less you'll even remember like, oh, did I write this or did Chris write it? Then it just becomes the code base that everybody works on. Exactly. And not to mention like when you're sharing that responsibility, you're also going to have sharing of domain knowledge. So you're not going to end up with those knowledge silos 
like what happened in this organization where Rick was like the knowledge keeper of everything and everybody else was just waiting for him to fix things because they couldn't understand what he had done. Exactly. Or you run into situations where people move on from projects. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've definitely worked on a project where it was like, you know, here's this big code base. No one can explain it to you because the people that wrote it are gone. Yeah. And, And that's not ideal either. Like that sort of continuing shared understanding of things is uh, super important. Yeah, for sure. So another thing that I think this project could have benefited from is like a periodic evaluation of what the project needed. Yeah. They didn't need to like focus all of this time and energy, like making a complex system that would handle a whole bunch of edge cases. And they ended up deciding that they wanted to strip out a lot of those edge cases. And like later on, they prioritized the MVP, but why couldn't that have happened two years earlier? Right. It sounds like Rick maybe wrote features that were in anticipation of needs, right? Like mm-hmm. we might need to have this in the future. And so I should double the time that I spend on it so that it can be, you know, there's always that thinking that I should make this code more generic so that it can handle more scenarios. And, you know, you just aren't going to need mm-hmm. necessarily that yet. And, you know, you can always do that down the road when you actually need to ha- make that code handle many situations. Yeah, I think a lot of engineers are guilty of over-engineering early on. In fact, I think you did a podcast on that one, didn't you? Maybe. Yeah. But I also think that, like, I'm not sure if this decision or, or this problem came from the engineering side or from the management side. So I think focusing on the MVP and, like, you're going to get that when you're, you know, working in a more agile fashion. Yep. That, that comes from, like, whoever's writing the stories, whoever's prioritizing the backlog and saying, okay, like, this is what we need to finish right now. Yeah. Without going too deep down the road of everything you should do for project management, right? I think that the, the biggest, like, helper there is having a very firm definition of MVP with your client, right? Mm-hmm. When a lot mm-hmm. of times when, when people that are used to agile practices kind of approach someone who's not familiar with it and say, hey, we're going to ship an MVP, a minimum viable product. What the client hears is you're going to ship something that doesn't work yet yes, or that doesn't meet my needs. And they forget that or they don't define well that V stands for viable, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And so what is the minimum viable product, not the minimum product? was the smallest thing that actually serves these needs. I wonder if viable would be better replaced with valuable. Ooh, it even fits the existing acronym. I love it. Yeah, exactly. That's brilliant. I mean, like, you know, I think we have to think about like, what is the least amount of work that we can finish and still be giving value to our customers or our stakeholders, whoever they may be. Absolutely. And that allows for, you know, when, when, Software development happens to be an expensive thing mm-hmm. when you look at it, you know, from a from a broad view. And so it's impossible to change your mind about how you're going to spend all that money yeah. after the software work has been done. Right. Mm-hmm. So what's the smallest thing that that serves needs? And then what are you going to learn when you have that thing? Yeah. that's going to change your mind about all the other things. Totally. Yeah. The last bullet point was very important to me about how to fix this or prevent this. And that's to avoid a rock star culture in your organization. Yeah. It seems like if anyone in your organization is exempt from being a good person or being a good collaborator, you have a problem. Yes. I want the definition of rock star to be this person is technically talented, but also they're great at working with others and actually meeting project goals and actually being a good person, making people like mm-hmm. helping people to enjoy working with them. Like a rock star should be someone that some people love to work with. Not like, yeah, not I a agree. prima donna that 
has their own private office that they never come out of and can say anything or do anything because they're too brilliant to be bothered to deal with others. No, definitely not. And I think that, you know, everybody is complicit in this or it's every member of the organization's responsibility to ensure that, you know, everyone is being a good person. Like before everything else, like you need to be nice. Yeah. So I think that valuing these rock stars or ninjas or, you know, all of these other words that we call 10x developers, valuing these people and like letting them get away with toxic behavior has contributed to a huge issue in the tech industry. And I think people are kind of finally starting to get on board with that. Yeah, I think we're developing the right language for identifying that sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, it's still got a long way to go. And, you know, a lot of people can go pretty far in their career, like being awful to their coworkers and still be very successful. Absolutely. I hope that that changes. Yeah. Well, and, you know, as engineers, as management, as team members in general, like, you know, we're all responsible for holding our peers accountable and saying, like, we aren't going to behave like that here. I think that that's an excellent thing to wrap up on. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about this, Chris. This has been really interesting. Absolutely. I think it was a, a harrowing tale that we we managed to create a, uh, yeah. a bright, shining future for. I do wish Rick luck. Yeah, I'm sorry definitely. that that happened to him. I'm sorry that it happened to the team too, but mostly I have empathy for him in the situation. Right, right. Hopefully that was the worst it got. Hopefully it was not like the preview to something even worse. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. Thanks everyone for listening. If you want more interestings, please sign up for our newsletter at codingzeal.com slash interestings or follow us on Twitter at CodingZeal. Thanks everyone. Thank you.